Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore Paleolithic mythology, the oldest mythology known to humanity. My guest is Bernie Taylor, who is a naturalist and an archaeoastronomer. He is the author of Biological Time and also Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Bernie lives in the Portland area, Portland, Oregon. And now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bernie. It's a pleasure to see you today. Jeff, thanks for having me on the program. I've been looking forward to this for years. Well, you have done some fascinating work going into this cave in northern Spain where people have been looking at red dots and uh, hand silhouettes for a hundred years and they haven't been able to see in the uh, paintings and carvings on the rock things that you and uh, people you're working with, like uh, the great biologist George Schaller, were able to identify. Well, thank you for the compliments, and George would appreciate that as well. But we have to remember that I'm not the artist. Um, there were people tens of thousands of years before our time that didn't have the toys that we have. They didn't have the technology, but they were just as smart as we are. And they put into stone using uh, the technology that they had, which was obviously very primitive as long as 40,000 years ago, the earliest records that human beings have made of their worldview, their mythology. Absolutely. Not just their worldview, but their cosmic view. Their view of the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals in their world and how they integrated with that greater cosmos, and as well as the underworld. That's important because we're now in the underworld. We're in Tartarus. As I looked at your work, and I know it's extremely extensive, it covers everything from modern art to astronomy. One of the things that really impressed upon me is that the oldest myths of human beings must have something to do with our relationship to uh, the continent where the human species originated, Africa. Good. That's a good point. And we historically have believed that s southeastern Africa was the point of human origin. Um, as in, you know, modern, sort of modern humans, as we would say. And the fossil, the fossils dated to about 230,000 years ago. Um, and that was really old. But about five years ago, there was a find at a place called Jebel Irhud in Morocco that dated to 300,000 years ago. Rewrote all the books, everything we knew about anthropology. Where do we come from? And of course, <clears throat> if you look at a map, Jebel Urhud, Morocco, is three hours across the Strait of Gibraltar to Europe. So I'm not saying that we, we came from Europe, but I'm saying that there's an integrated, integrated biosphere between West North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, which is now Spain. So where do we come from is a big question. It's not 230,000 years ago in Southeast Africa. Anthropologists are long beyond, beyond that subject, but it's still a tantalizing question. 
earlier in our conversation, you suggested to me that ancient humans could have swum across from Africa to Europe. Oh, absolutely. It's a three-hour swim. I believe that across the English Channel is like 10 hours or so in rough waters. But of, of course you could have swum across. In fact, if, if one stands at, um, at the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, you can see Jebel Musa, which is um, a mountain that's, that looks like a female, the muse, uh, across. I, mean, I haven't seen that view, but you can see the pictures and people. It's one of the things that people talk about is, well, they can look across and they can see Africa. Animals swim across. Birds, of course, flew, flew back and forth. It's only a three-hour swim. They have, there's competitions how fast people can do it and how many times people can do it. And I believe the record is someone has done it back and forth three times. So it would seem to me that some of the earliest heroes' journeys would be associated with that swim. And, you know, you brought up an important concept that we call the hero's journey, or, or Joseph Campbell called the hero's adventure. He never used the word journey, or at least not in his writing. So there's a, there's a journey, um, a story within us all that we take through in our lives. Um, it may be a story that we, you know, through adolescence and we face the bully or we face the other team or uh, whatever, or, or we, you know, had a challenging moment in school. We all have um, journeys to take in our lives, obstacles to overcome. And through that, we become the more integrated self. And you've, you've had youngins on the program before. <laughs> it's kind of the sphere. And so this, the hero's journey is part of who we are. At the same time, this is a hero's journey story of an, of a person, um, that travels from northern Spain, what is now northern Spain, down the Iberian Peninsula, swims across the Strait of Gibraltar into northern Africa, um, sees what he, what he's supposed to see, and then returns back in. So we have a chronicled story of a, Point A to point B and back to point A again. So this is not, it's, just, it's not just an internal hero's journey or adventure. This is also of the external world that the individual integrates with. And we're talking about now some of the earliest modern humans, probably who, whose ancestors mated with Neanderthals. Neanderthals did mate with Homo sapiens and it's, it is possible. There's no question that th these people could have uh, mated with Neanderthals. Because Neanderthals disappeared about 40,000 years ago. These are about 34 to 36,000. So you're, these individuals may not have, but their great-great-great-grandmothers, grandfathers could have, for sure. Absolutely. You know, and when people of European descent typically have a 4% Neanderthal DNA in them. So, you know, we have it right now. Another thing you pointed out is that the Toreg people, who are Berbers, currently living in the Sahara in northern Africa, uh, that their genes have been found throughout Europe, even going as far north as Finland. Absolutely, and I did a twenty, I did a twenty-three and Me test, and as the Scottish part of me, it says that you have um, Saharan DNA in you, which is tied to the Tuareg. So the Tuareg are an interesting people. The Tuareg were lost in the, have been lost in the Sahara for a very long period of time. They were insulated people, sort of fourth world people, like like Native Americans were before European migrations, and people in Alaska were. So when you when you connect with Tuaregs, you're connecting with people 
from a d very distant time. I have a Tuareg friend, and I'm really proud of it. Um, and here's a kind of funny story. My daughter, when she was in high school, she was taking a French class, and she invited him in to to speak to the French uh, to the French class about um, in French about the Tuareg people. And the teacher, her teacher, said to her, "How did you meet this person?" Because there may be only 20 or 30 Tuaregs in the United States. Now, there's a lot of them in France because uh, the greatest Harris was traditionally French speaking as a foreign language. But yes, I have a Tuareg friend. His name is Akli. Um, and Akli helped me a great deal with this because he had a, or has an uncle that falls into the category of what we would call a shaman, shaman shamanic traditions. And he, Told, he, I would ask Akli a question and like two months later through how the camel walks, the, the question would come back and answer. And he related things that were really interesting and fascinating. And he was, he considers himself to like the last, they don't use the word shaman because they're not shaman, they're shamanic uh, traditions, but he was sort of the last of his kind among the Tuareg in Niger. So it was, um, a Tuareg fascinating people. And I, I had this unique, moment to connect with them, as I still do. The, this artwork that you describe very eloquently in the cave walls and uh, the El Castillo caves in northern Spain seems to even predate the great mythological patterns that were later projected into the uh, constellations of the sky and, and recorded by the Greeks. Yes, absolutely. Or um, borrowed by the Greeks, borrowed by the Greeks, <laughs> in the same way that you might borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor to bake a cake, you never actually give it back. Okay, so and uh, so it's an interesting concept. Well, the question then is, so we fundamentally all have our hero's journey. We have our hero's journeys as individuals, as societies, um, as nations. We have our journeys. Of course, we just, we've been in crisis moments in previous the last two years that test ourselves. So, so we have this, we have this implicit journey within ourselves. The, the question is, are there, is there sort of an Akashic records of sorts, some sort of, um, that we download from that the Greeks, the Greeks and ourselves download and we have this common personality, this common types. And I don't believe there is. <clears throat> what I believe is that the ancient Greeks and others had gone back to these caves and they looked in the walls and they saw this imagery and they recognized the hero's journey story because it's a story that's within ourselves and they individually had as their own, their own heroic adventures. And they said, boy, these people were incredibly smart. These people had fascinating adventures and they, 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 they partnered with animals. They integrated with animals such as a centaur. They became, they battled with the lion, um, which is of course Leo. And then what they said was, well, you know, we recognize some of these animals. We recognize Leo as the lion in proportion to um, Ursa Major as a bear, because they also had those in er earlier times that they inherited from who knows where. And what they did, the same thing I did is they said, okay, I've got these three animals that I know. Maybe these other ones are, are constellations as well. They filled in the blanks, the exact same thing as, as I did. And I thought, you know, here we have, we have the, the lion here. We have the horse here. We have Ursa mate, horses, horses of Pegasus. We have the, the, um, the, the bears of Ursa major up here. 
shouldn't there be a, a monster over here? And of course, there was a monk seal, uh, which became Cetus, the constellation. And then I realized what was very important that the Greeks missed, that the upper Paleolithic um, artists had, is that Orion, Hercules, Perseus, and the other great heroes are actually one hero in the Paleolithic mind. As he travels around the cosmos, this, this great hero, he integrates with or battles with, in the case of the lion Leo, these animals that become part of him. He picks up their essence, their spirituality along the way. And so that when you look at some, you know, images, imagery of or stories of Orion Hercules, they'll have them both holding or battling a lion. But so there was originally one myth, the Paleolithic myth, that the, the ancient Greeks and others, they looked at it and they said, you know, these can't be the same hero. Let's split them apart. And that created the, created the mythology that we now credit to the ancient Greeks that they borrowed like a cup of sugar from the Alpapaleothic mind that they never gave credit for in that great baking of the cake. Well, it would be understandable that these things get lost in time. And as you pointed out, for hundreds of years, archaeologists and scholars would enter these caves and wouldn't see what you and uh, your partner, George Schaller, were able to see. And let, let's talk about that a, a little bit, because there's always the question, as, as you acknowledge, of pareidolia. Absolutely. Very important question. Well, the actual, let's say, modern-day archaeologists, okay, so in the last 50, 70, 60 years or so. We actually have a record of people who had been to the caves in the last 500 years, and they saw exactly this stuff. There was a, a Jesuit priest, for example, who walked out of the caves and said, there's drag it's a dragon in there. Um, and there's, there's a, an animal with, you know, like a, a wolf-like animal with, with huge teeth. And that's an important point. So people had actually gone to these caves. The people, and they'd seen these images in the last hundreds of years. Basque people have um, mythology that directly relates to these caves and that they point to these caves. So there was a point in time, and we're going to say in the last you know, 200 years or 300 years, that there was a change of psychology in the mind of European man. And I would say that's largely a change in religion. And so the, the, the Jesuit priest that came, that wrote about this, he said that they were people who worshiped their dead. There's a word for that. There's, I come up with it. There's a, um, nef, nef or something, but the people who worship their dead. Well, what he was doing, he was writing a letter to actually that ended up the desk of the, the king of Spain at the time and then to the Pope. He was talking about, um, a tradition that was different, that he perceived as different from the Christian tradition, that was off limits. And so these were taboo subjects. When the, the Romans came into the Iberian Peninsula, they didn't allow the Basque people to climb their mountains, to go into their caves, to worship these evil beings from their past, that they previously, these pagan beings. So there was a, a switch that turned off in the minds of people that didn't allow them to explore these concepts write about them and discuss them, even if they had seen them, because Catholic, Spain is a Catholic country. It's not a, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's a, it's a Catholic country. And when you, when you're speaking about, you have to keep the ar Spanish archaeologists, they're scientists, but they have to keep it within the realms of what the Catholic tradition could be. 
Um, so they were archaeologists. That, they were priest archaeologists in the past. And they were the prominent ones from probably the 19, one was prominent from 1940s into the late 60s, the Abbey Brule. And he defined archaeology in Spain and France as we know it. Okay. So these are, um, these are traditions, um, Christian traditions that people drew from. Now, you asked me about the question of paranoia, completely different, is that <clears throat> there are artists in our world today that create art based on paranoia. And paranoia is our, our unique ability among animals that are, that allows us to, um, put pieces together in images. So, for example, if you're looking at a, a mountain scene with a river in front of it, um, you recognize that there's the river is streaming along, you know, the slope and the mountains in the background and the, and the sky beyond that. Your that's your mind is processing paranoia because your mind has created a, a three dimensional, a four or five dimensional, well, actually multiple multiple spheres or perspectives on a, a on a flat plane. So people, we do this in our normal lives. When we recognize people's faces, that's in some degree paranoia. People who have strokes, lose. some people lose the ability to recognize paranoia. They can't recognize people in their world. It's, it's a phenomenon. People, some people have strokes, can't recognize, don't see paranoia in the clouds. They don't see bunnies and bears and elephants and all these sorts of things. So it's part of our mind. And there's a sphere of what people can see in paranoia. Some people can see, uh, you know, a zoo in the clouds, whereas other people see absolutely nothing or very little. So these, these, I believe that these panels were in some ways a test of the apprentice. Could they see the forest through the trees or the trees through the forest in some cases? They wanted to be able to test. If you, if you can't see that, you can't see the constellations of the night sky. You can't take the journey. Um, you can't travel through the stars to take that, this great epic journey, um, around the, what is now the Iberian Peninsula and sometimes into West North Africa. Because recognizing patterns in the star, recognizing Ursa Major or Leo or Hercules or Orion, that's pareidolia. When you see Orion in the sky, you have the ability to recognize pareidolia. And you think, oh, that's a man or a human form at least. Um, that's something unique to human beings. Chimpanzees can't do that. <laughs> okay. So yes, this is... There is a part of us that, that enables us to see paradoia or, um, or re create paradoia in some cases that enable, that brings meaning to two things for us. Another point that you make in your book, since you brought up the question of chimpanzees, is that it's very likely the earliest human languages were like the languages of chimpanzees, sign language. A very good, very important question is that we, we think that Pelithic man, you know, 30, 40,000 years ago, well, people for a long time have thought they are lesser beings. They can't think like we do. They don't have the intelligence so far. They maybe had language was a few grunts and they dragged around people, you know, their mates, you know, by their hair or something. And we have images, we have images of that in the movies. And we have images of that. And, you know, you see, you can see them online. It's a, Totally, totally bunk concept. And there's been, you know, debate whether or not 
Paleolithic man had language or gesture language, sign language. We can go back to chimpanzees and we can see that in the wild, chimpanzees, so-called wild, chimpanzees have a gesture language. Chimpanzees have about 60 gestures that they can say, you know, mate, come here. I'm ready to mate, I should say. Eat this. Thank you. You know, good job, all that sort of stuff. It's about 60 of them. And that's that naturally comes to chimpanzees. Now, chimpanzees in captivity have learned thousands of gestures of American Sign Language, and they've taught other chimpanzees to do that. So chimpanzees, if a chimpanzees have the ability to have a gesture language, to do signs, as it were, we there's no reason to believe that Paleolithic man that could create this incredible imagery in the walls did not have a gesture language. And we probably had a gesture language of some sort going back for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years before that. So we have a common ancestor with the chimpanzee, and when that line brought up, uh, that line that went off, Everybody, Homo erectus, and had the ability to have a gesture language, um, or, and perhaps even more exquisite sign language. And I've worked on a system for many animals that is expressed uh, on the that's time factor, sort of time of year that the animals would have events, as well as the, the description of the animals of, in those events. So they have their horns up, the antlers up, the ears down, that sort of thing. And that's that's consistent with people who uh, indigenous people around the world who create gesture or sign languages based on the animals. Well, yes, we Upper Paleolithic man and women, or people, were highly intelligent. They made incredible art beyond what most of us could imagine someone making in modern times. And they had a gesture language that they could communicate with each other. And gesture, gesture languages are really important because we, among ourselves, have accents. We have, we have accents within one language. We have languages that change over time. But with gesture languages, tend to be more consistent. Um, you have a limited number of fingers. So people who had never met could, uh, um, or never met someone who even had the same language group, potentially could um, sign with each other through a gesture language, which enables you know trade and migration across greater spans of time and space. Now, I'm going to jump around a little bit, Bernie. And, and the reason is that uh, you, in your book, um, before Orion, the many faces of the hero, as I recall, or finding the face of the hero, uh, you use a very interesting story as sort of the archetype of a hero's journey that we can understand in modern times. And you choose as as your hero, the great chess player, Bobby Fischer. Well, coinc coincidentally, Bobby Fischer's brother-in-law, Russell Targ, is a good friend of mine, uh, I've just interviewed him uh, about a week ago. Uh, it hasn't. It was recently released, I should say, about a week ago. I have another interview with Russell scheduled next week, so it's very timely that uh, we talk about the, the story of Bobby Fischer as it relates to these ancient Paleolithic myths that you've been exploring. Absolutely. So Bobby Fischer and I would I would say these Paleolithic artists were at the, the edge or the fringe of what we would call normality. So there's a bell curve, right? There's people who you know, we call you know, mainstream modern ordinary people that we you know get in the morning, eat you know, cereal, go to work, blank, blank, blank. Bobby Fisher wasn't like that, right? And these cave artists probably weren't either. And if we look at sh these people weren't shamans, but if we look at shamanic traditions and people are drawn to be those so-called people, um, they typically have... <clears throat> Some sort of schizophrenia, 
okay, or some sort of outlying um, mental condition. And it's that mental condition that helps them to do the great things they do. And Bobby Fischer was clearly was clearly one of them. Uh, Bobby Fischer was a he believed that all the all there were microphones all over the place listening in on him. Um, and during it, it, it served his advantage in, in, in his chess tournament with Spatsky because he he walked away from the table because he thought he heard noises like in the pen and these sort of things. Okay, <laughs> and 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 the, his opponent was just this is like cr too crazy for me. And he actually sort of freaked out or psyched out his, his opponent unintentionally um, by this. So Bobby Fischer was on on, on the on this, this the outer edge of what we would describe as normality. And these cave artists are probably the same thing. So every person in the Upper Pelvic probably couldn't make this art, just as everybody couldn't make it today. And everybody can't go to the level of of, of Bobby Fischer's um, level of chess, uh, just as I can for sure. Now, there's, there's two commonalities that I believe between these Upper Hill Cavers and Bobby Fischer. It's Bobby Fischer's father, and as his, his presumed father, I should say, um, and his mother were math mathematicians. Okay, and his, and his presumed father was a very high-level mathematician. And when you reach when you reach that level of math, you tend to find people who are on the outer limits of normality. Okay, it's a thing. Okay, and the same thing you find with artists. That these are people that see the world differently. They have a completely different perception of reality. And so I, I use the Bobby Fischer example because it's a case in modern times that we see people on, on the spectrum. So it was Bobby Fischer mad, as some people would say, but you know, not, or was he genius? Is there a separation between the two? Is there truly a separation between the two? If you look at the most, 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 um, innovative people in the world today, you know, you know, listen to them, look at the works they do. And is it madness or is it genius? Um, there's a fine line, but we are, we are enthused and we are drawn in by the, 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 the both the madness and the genius. And so Bobby Fisher, I felt was a, a really good example. And it does seem as if world mythology as a whole points to a reality that, from our conventional workaday perspective, does seem like madness. For example, the idea that our consciousness extends into the heavens, that we are one with the stars. Very good. That's a very interesting point. So Rupert Sheldrake, you may have had him on your program or could have him, uh, Rupert Sheldrake believes in so this Akashic record that's all around us and that we are actually integrated with the stars. So the question is, are we integrated with the stars? Well, we are from stardust. And of course, that comes, you know, from the phys physics. But do we draw from the stars? Do we draw consciousness from the stars is, is the question that Rupert Sheldrake explores. I don't believe so. Um, I believe that we're wired. We're wired for stories. We're wired to see parad we're wired fundamentally to see paradoia. We're wired for spirituality. Um, and all these all these characteristics help us to work together as a society as well as battle with other societies. Okay. Um, and, and they bring peace, they bring stability. Um, and that was Noah Harari um, wrote a brilliant book about that. Um, so there's that's what I believe, and I believe we're wired for that. So 
we have pe these Pelthic images. The ancient Greeks came and saw them, and they saw this hero on this journey. And they see that the hero, you know, merges with one animal and fights with another, being the lion. So the, the ancient Greeks recognized, well, actually, they, maybe they didn't even recognize it, but what we find through the ancient Greeks is that they found stories, fundamentally, that pale the cave artist stories, because people in general don't go into the, into the so-called wild and pet lions um, in a cave. It doesn't happen. Um, but people do play with dolphins, as this hero does on his journey. So they recognize that there's this, this, um, there's inherent abilities that a story that they saw is fundamentally how they, how the Greeks are, how cave artists made the stories, fundamentally how the, the Greeks took it back, with the exception. The Greeks were a, uh, a warlike people, okay? <laughs> they weren't animus. The Greeks, uh, you know, they planted fields, they, they, um, they herded goats and cattle and all this sort of stuff. Whereas the epilogue cave artists, was one who lived with the animals, one who looked at the, the mother lynx and saw the tender relationship with the kitten um, and saw that one could learn from that. And so the the Greeks could never have seen that. The Greeks could only say, well, this person is is you now fighting with the, the lynx or something like that. And in the Greek story of Orion, Orion goes around across lands and kills animals wherever he goes which is not an animist way of seeing the world. An animist sees the world as, how do we learn from the animals? Um, and J um, Jane Goodall, the famous primatologist, she said that her great teacher was her dog. Um, and that was how she learned to see that animals are different, so-called human animals are different from other animal beings, and that there's a great deal to learn from. And she became an animist when she went to the Gomi forest and worked on chimpanzees. She looked at the, she named the chimpanzees, which was totally, you know, off limits for biologists. But she formed personal relationships with them. Um, and that's what she took back to us, to the world, is that the animals, beings of the forests are just as valid as we are. They have family relationships and they have values in their own way. Um, they dance in the rain, and they they have wars, which she found as well. And so these basic these basic human characteristics that we believe we long believe were used in ourselves until Jane Goodall were uh, thought of many tens of thousands of years ago, and how people interrelated with their world as opposed to battling with the world and turning over the world with bulldozers and whatever else. Um, and we're getting back to that point now. You know, we had the green movement of the 60s and the 70s, and people now um, want to, you know, they want to do yoga outside. Okay. Um, the, we're, we're going back to that place as part of the green movement. I think it's worth pointing out, since you've brought up Jane Goodall, that your partner in exploring the cave art in El Castillo, George Schaller, was her mentor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that George wasn't so much my partner, but George was my mentor too. <laughs> I can tell you that one. And um, when, when Jane Goodall went into the, the, the Gomi Forest, she, uh, George came shortly after. He had just written a book about uh, mountain grills. And he said to her, there's two things you want to, you want to look for. One is, do they use tools? And second is, do they eat meat? 
Because those are two defining human characteristics that we believe at that time. And she found that, yeah, they did definitely did eat meat. Um, and they, you know, juvenile chimpanzees killed other, other, let's say other monkeys. Um, and they used tools that they, they took sticks and they put them in the termite holes and, you know, put them in their mouths, that sort of stuff. So absolutely. Now, George was my mentor in a very big way on this. And we did this all remotely. He was, he lives in the East Coast, I think Massachusetts, but he would, I would ask him a question. I'd hear back from him a month or two later because he was off in Afghanistan somewhere that stand working on, you know, some, um, a lion, the preservation of some sort of lion. Um, so when we look at the images, I was interested in the, t- I started off interested in the, t- what is, how are they time factored? What is it telling us about the time of year that these events are happening? I wasn't interested in astronomy and I wasn't interested in all the, all this psychology and so forth. And, and George would come back and say, well, he would say, well, it's a tender moment between the, 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 the mother lynx, Iberian lynx and her kitten. And he said he had seen such moments before in Africa when he, where he did his field work. And I'm like, okay, that's not really what I'm asking. And then I ask him, well, what do you think the, what do you think the, the giraffe is doing? The, the giraffe. And he says, well, he's probably looking down at the mongoose. Okay. That's not what I wanted to know. <laughs> okay. And uh, so what George was looking at, was the same thing he looked at when he worked on his book of uh, lions in the Serengeti was the relationships between the animals themselves, as opposed to our relationship, how we view the animals. And, and he had the same line of thought as Jane Goodall is that they're, they're animal beings with feelings and relationships. Um, and that's the story. And the hero, I ultimately recognized the hero on his journey. He, he, he integrates with these animals that George recognized that are almost without, except for the lion, they're all female. So he integrates with all, he integrates meets with all these animals, female animals on his journey. And the male hero picks up the feminine traits of those animals. So that would be the, the, well, that would be the anima, correct? Yes. So he integrates in a Jungian sense with, uh, to become, so th- when he returns back at the end of his journey, all these animals, all these female animals are part of his garb and part of his self. So he then becomes the fully integrated male who recognizes both his masculinity because he fights and slays the lion, but also that he needed all the females on his journey. So what did the ancient Greeks do? Well, the ancient Greeks substituted all those female animals for female forms that help the heroes on their journey. And in some cases, the female forms could transform into an animal to help the hero, or at least give the, give the, the, um, the hero some sort of amulet, um, something of themselves to help the hero to slay the lion or fight the dragon, that sort of stuff. Um, and so the, not only did these upper-health artists understand or comprehend you know, the cosmos and the, that these were animals, and that's a mother and the, the child. But they recognize very deep Jungian psychology that we're, we're still coming to grasp with today. Um, cause Jung was a, a extraordinary genius. Um, and he had concepts that instead of saying what it was, he would write an entire book about these are examples of this is what it is. Um, and so that is part of, this journey we're still taking of learning to recognize young, but they understood it 34,000 years ago and they integrated it into their, their hero's journey myth adventure with the integration of the female who assists the, 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 the 
adolescent hero on his journey. Well, another important aspect, I think, of the Jungian journey, the Jungian version of the hero's journey, shall we say, is, is the idea of the confrontation with the self, the journey inside. And as I understand it, you, you relate that both to the heroic journey of Bobby Fischer and to the Paleolithic art that you've explored. Absolutely. In the Bobby Fischer case, he had trouble getting out of bed. Okay. <laughs> and he was afraid of all these demons that were ultimately in his head, uh, such as, you know, thinking that the, the pen was a, you know, was recording him. Um, and, and, and Bobby, Bobby Fisher had to face the fear of his old, his, his demon was himself. And he ultimately had to face his own demon to, um, to rise to the level and beat his Spatsky to take the world championship. So in this Paleolithic journey, we find the hero actually faces himself. So the, the constellations or characters of Perseus and um, Orion, they face off. Um, they look at each other in the eye and they, they, one is punching, the other has got his arm up with a club. And these two characters are actually in a different time and different time and place. As we know, Orion and Perseus are in the night sky. But they battle with each other. So the hero has come to this moment that he's he's in a crisis moment, that he battles with himself. And after that crisis moment, he comes to battle the lion, which is the which is of course Leo, as I've said. And he actually and, he, and the lion is the only animal that he slays on his journey, and he takes the pelt of the animal that put, puts around his nest, his neck. So yes, um, the hero comes to face himself in the Jungian sense. Now, Joseph Campbell, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to start off, I'm a fan of Joseph Campbell, okay? Um, but I'm also a criti critic of Joseph Campbell. Um, one of the things that Joseph Campbell said he was completely right about was that the, the hero on his journey picks up the, um, or integrates with the female uh, forms. And, um, and he comes back to be the, the more integrated man. Now, people say that's sexist. No, it's not sexist because it is what it is. Um, and that is what is, that's what happened. This Paleolithic journey was happened for, you know, tens of who knows how many millions of years. Now, what Joseph Campbell also said, so he was, uh, Joseph Campbell's right about that. What he also said is that when we've come to face the dragon, that is the dragon within ourselves. Um, I'll give that one that for the lion, but not for the dragon. Because the dragon is, in, we actually have Draco in the constellation in the, in the right place as a crocodile, a very large crocodile. The dragon is, is actually protecting an egg or the, the, the crocodile that becomes the dragon in mythology is protecting an egg that the hero is trying to steal. Okay. So is the hero afraid of the, the crocodile? Absolutely not. The hero is trying to steal the crocodile's egg. Okay. Um, so the, this original, that's, that's a sort of a, a reimagining of the story as the ancient Greeks and people came in modern times of this, of the hero facing the dragon, which is the demon and that sort of stuff, which goes back to the, um, St. George and the dragon myth as well. So the original dragon comes 34,000 years ago as, as, that we have that became the constellation Draco and was, um, being preyed upon this mother crocodile by the hero. And it's not about facing the dragon in the cave and all what Joseph Campbell proposed and one often reads.
Well, since you bring up the dragon myth, the oldest dragon story of which I'm aware comes from Samaria, and it's part of the creation story of Samaria, where uh, the, the dragon is also a great female goddess, Tiamat, and the god Marduk comes and slays the dragon, and out of her belly, he cuts open her belly, and out of her belly, the universe emerges. That's the act of creation. Yes. So very interesting. And there's an overlapping of the parallel story. So the, the ancient Mesopotamians had had a source, and this this was this was their source. So I said that the the hero goes tries to steal the egg from the crocodile, and the, and the crocodile holds the egg in its its mouth. Okay. Um, that is the 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 eleventh, you know, the last minute of the twelfth hour of this story, or the 24th hour of this journey. Because in that 24th hour, he returns to be this integrated self, and he's holding the egg. Okay, he's holding the egg in his, in his right hand. And what's interesting is that in the image, the he's holding the egg, but the crocodile hasn't released the egg from its clutches, its jaws. So he's, he's holding the egg with the crocodile dangling down from this, from the egg. Okay. Which is kind of an interesting piece of it. So what is he? So that egg becomes from my my um, my read on it. It's the cosmic egg, okay, and that um, which goes cosmic egg from which all life sprang, and you know the, the effectively the Big Bang story. Okay, that's what it is. Okay, um, it's the singularity, and this this mythology. Oh, the, the ancient Mesopotamians goes directly to this because that is the origin of creation, um, as as people later came to interpret it. But that's not. I'm going to tell you that is not the origin, not the pillar. Cave artists interpreted it as they didn't see it as a cosmic egg. Um, what they saw it as um, one integrated um, image of all these constellations, all these characters that overlap with each other. That. Um, then sprang forth into the cosmos, but not from an egg, but from a mountain, from a cosmic mountain. That was their mythology. Their mythology was that the integration between the earth, the terrestrial plane that we stand on, and the sky world was a cosmic mountain. And that the, all these characters had once been in this mountain, and then they sprung from the mountain, they broke free from the mountain, and that became the cosmos in the night sky. It also became the terrestrial cosmos, because these are all animals in their world, as and as well as in the underworld, Tartarus. So we think of, you can look at the world tree, of course, where the branches reach the sky, the, the stem, I guess the, the base of the tree is the, where we stand, the terrestrial world, and the underworld, all those roots into the ground, which is, of course, a, a metaphor that we use, that they uh, they definitely used it, and we use it as well, and that everything... Everything is connected um, in their cosmic view. This paradoia cosmic view where they can find in the stars all these, these constellations, these animals, and where we can find them too through the depths of our paradoia imagination. You also bring up the origin of beings that are known in virtually every culture. We think of them as angels. It's the integration of the human with the bird. And 
it goes back, I suppose, to the earliest shamanic traditions as as well, where you see the the use of feathers and various shamanic rituals. Absolutely, we can travel around the world and throughout time. You can find people who put feathers in their hair hair as ceremon ceremonially to have that flight to reach to the great beyond. That's the essence of the story. So the bird, whether it be an actual bird or a feather of a bird, so that, you know, the actual bird be horse in the Greek, in the Egyptian tradition, right? Or Zeus transformed himself into the bird Agalar to um, come down to earth. So whether it's an actual bird or it's a feather of a bird, the bird, it, the, the bird becomes the intermediary between the great beyond. So there is a time before airplanes where we and, and spaceships where we could we couldn't travel very hot, very hot. And the only way that we can do it was either climb a mountain or, be, in essence, become integrated with the bird. And we find this bird tradition, this bird ceremonial tradition throughout the world. We find it in North America among Native Americans. And everybody thinks, obviously, thinks of the Native American headdress and the, the dancers and so forth. Well, that tradition, Native Americans came across uh, from Brangia, across uh, straight, you know, now another the Bering Strait, 15 to 20,000 years ago. Actually came across, but they came down at a later time period. And we find the same traditions in what we now call Siberia. Um, and so these traditions, Native Americans did not invent these, these traditions, but they, 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 the validation of them in that they have their own forms of the traditions. So the, you know, the Lakota Sioux and the Iroquois had a different dance and they used different language. But fundamentally, it was the, this transcendence. So we can travel around the world going back tens of thousands of years and we can find these images of the, of the, the man, because they're all men in these cases, um, integrating with the, with the bird. And in every case, you can see the face, uh, sorry, sorry, you can see the lower part of the face, the nose and the mouth of the man. So the artist is very careful to show that the man integrates and draws strength from the birds, but the man does not become the bird. Okay. So that through the putting on the, the mask and putting on the feather dress, one can then transcend to the great beyond. One, one does not become a bird itself. And so if we think about angels or, or this avianoid tradition, the avian, the angels, um, in Abrahamic tradition is the intermarry between the, the great almighty God and the human. And so, you know, mother, mother, uh, Mary, mother of Jesus was visited by, by an angel. Um, Muhammad was visited by an angel. You can just go down the list and you find the angel Gabriel. Um, and actually Muhammad was actually tutored by the angel Gabriel, not just met the angel Gabriel. And so what we're finding is that there's, there's something inside of us, this animate, this animism, uh, this, this belief that we can integrate with animals to go to other places. And we still do today. You may have said someone is, you know, smart as an owl or as strong as an ox, fast as a stallion, fast, swift as a cheetah, all these sort of things. But we're not as fast as a cheetah. We're not as strong as an ox. And we're certainly heckling smarter than an owl. So we, we retain these animistic traditions in case, the case of the, the angel within us. Now, people will say, well, that's just, you know, you know, mumbo jumbo, spirituality, you know, religious stuff. 
But it goes beyond that. If you go to a Mar- the theater to see Marvel movie um, and DC Comics, you're going to see the integration through Spider-Man and Batman and Aquaman and you just go down the list. So there's something in us that we can look at a movie and see a man transform into a spider. Um, and we believe it. We fundamentally believe that 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 genius and that madness can actually happen. So it's something that's integral to who we are as a species. Um, we don't see chimpanzees dancing like birds, and we don't see them, you know, leaping like leopards and all these sort of things. This is part of that fundamental um, psych, not visual paranoia, perhaps a mental paranoia in our imagination that makes us uniquely human. One of the other major themes that you've been alluding to has to do with the relationships between the genders. And uh, I know you've talked about uh, the, the role of the male, particularly with regard to the avianoid merging, but uh, there's also an important role for females that you've found in the uh, Paleolithic art. Absolutely. So the hero on the journey is clearly because I have a few panels with the same imagery, they're, they're men, and that's okay. But as I said earlier, the, the, the hero can't complete his journey, can't become the integrated self, unless, unless he picks up and learns from the female characters along the way. And there's a lot more female characters than there's male characters. There is actually one, there's actually, on this gallery of discs at the Elsie Cave, there are two female characters. Um, one of them is a uh, a pregnant woman who doesn't look very happy, and above her head is a is the origin of Medusa. Okay, okay, so it's a woman, um, and she's missing one eye. And I actually don't do that. I have it in the book, but I don't talk about that in presentations because uh, it's I haven't. Um, that's like nuances. And the Medusa character has her mouth. She's talking, and the 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 other the younger female woman is not talking she's just not happy at all um so we do have we too have we do have two female characters female human characters and it shows a dominance of the of the older female who's doing all the talking without any question about this in fact she is the only character on any these panels that actually talks um so she's she's giving her perspective on how things should be um so there's these images, the uphill of K-bars fully appreciated that there's a female presence and they both among other animal beings and human animal beings and that the, I believe they're actually matriarchal societies and she's doing all the talking and she's very clear, you know, I can't see her words, but she's very clear that she, she is to be heard. Um, and the, but the Greeks, ancient Greeks, took her as Medusa. So there's a change of psychology there. That they saw the, the woman, this domineering woman, that's kind of older woman, slightly monstrous in a way in how it was depicted, okay? She's, she's got one tooth and, you know, that sort of stuff. But they took her as a monstrous woman because that was the psycho, that was the mindset of the ancient Greeks, which is a different mindset of the, I believe, of the upper pillar of Kavars. We can shift, we can take archetypal characters. We can take the, the older woman as the wise woman, um, the matriarch, the leader of the clan, or we can change her into the monster.
So an archetype can go different ways, but we still recognize her as a dominant figure. We tend to think of uh, Western culture as having originated with the ancient Greeks, but what you're suggesting here is that the ancient Greeks inherited much, much older traditions from prehistory, and then uh, because of their own uh, situation, they distorted those older traditions. Yeah, they cha- well, they changed it to their worldview, just as we were, just as we do today, and. The the centaur, for example, in or um, the major centaur is got to give me a name on this one. Um, who who helps all the heroes? He's male, um, and but this centaur, this the the horse that the man integrates with on this journey is female. Okay, so the Greeks took they they in their worldview, you couldn't have a male horse running the show. Um, to teach all these male heroes how to be great at war. I mean, you mean you couldn't have a female horse? I'm sorry, you, you couldn't have a female. You couldn't have the female. Exactly correct. Thank you. And that's a it's a different world perspective. But in you know, in that that world perspective of the ancient Greeks would have been pretty close to 200 years ago, um, before the female emancipation in this in this country and in other parts of the world. And so today, if you look at a Disney movie, most of the heroes are young or adolescent girls okay, um, and females. So we have a shift in psychology to not just um, promote what had been lost before, but rather to uh, we're rewriting the story itself. So in other words, the mythology is constantly evolving. Yes, the mythology is constantly evolving. That's a good point. Well, one of the other themes that uh, is there in virtually all mythology around the world, we barely touched on it today, has to do with the underworld, the realm of the dead, and the idea that, that the, the dead, our ancestors, uh, are still with us. Absolutely. So the word, so I said earlier that the Jesuit priest went to the, into the caves and he came out. He said that they're worshiping their dead. That's what he said. But in the upper Pelagic mind, they weren't worshiping their dead. They were, they were integrating the underworld with the terrestrial world to the sky world. So where does this all come from? Um, where, where does all these ancient traditions of the, of the dead and the underworld come from? I believe this upper Pelagic source is that they people had gone to these caves and they had seen these characters and they so these obviously dead people because they're not alive now um and they they walked away and said this became the world of the dead now the world of and this isn't this is not a hell by any stretch of the imagination and what we think of the ancient greeks came up as tartarus they came up this this horrible world at, at cosmos and then later it became um the underworld of another word for underworld where, where the Cerberus was. And by the way, you can actually, in one of these cave panels, you can see the Cerberus. And what the Cerberus is, is an overlapping of three dogs. And so that it looks like there's a three headed dog, but in fact, it's there are three dogs and one of them is a puppy. Okay. <laughs> but, um, this, the ancient Greeks and others had walked away and they found this world of the dead that really wasn't there, but it's a world that they wanted to find. Um, 
So it wasn't something so, so something so, um, it, it, it was their perspective on their cosmic view. Um, so don't worry for, for, the, for the listeners out there. There's no underworld land of the dead. Um, it may be somewhere else, but it's certainly not in the underworld. Well, Bernie Taylor, this has been a fascinating exploration. You really ventured into places that few people have ventured, and it's an eye-opener for me. I think it'll be a real eye-opener for our viewers as well. I want to thank you very much for being with me today. Well, Jeff, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. I'd love to do a program another time, explore some of these subjects more deeply. Uh, These subjects that are at the core of who we are, They're about our existence and our cosmic view. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 